So it was a big day for Joe Biden today because he had the Swedish and the Finnish Prime Minister show up today to welcome them to, or at least encourage the United States Senate to welcome them into NATO, which was, you know, it's just this big deal. In the last hundred years, we haven't had this kind of shift in the balance of power in Europe as we're about to see now. NATO, and first thing, right. Sweden is, and, and Finland are great armies. These are very sophisticated arms providers. They are they have legitimate threats on their border, especially Russia. They know what they're doing. Um, so it strengthens NATO as a whole because it means that when we're invaded in the United States or Canada, wherever else, hey, guess what? They'll come to RA too. So um, that's nice to have. But also the reverse, obviously, which is what they are banking on here, is that if Russia decides to be belligerent against Finland or, or Sweden, then you know we have their back. So you'd think this is a thing that Republicans would be thrilled about, right? I mean... You'd think that's something that they'd be thrilled about. I don't know if they are. I think there might be uh, uh, some hesitancy about whether they should be allowing these two allies to be part of NATO, which tells you a lot about the Republican Party today. I mean, that's just uh, sad. It's just sad. You know, when Finland joins NATO, like we get any hot water, they send us like five snipers and we're good. So. Yeah. Look, I mean, they've got great snipers, right? Don't they have those, those incredibly brilliant shooters that could do like – Kills over a hundred miles or something like that. They're they're good at that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Russians all remember, and the Finns absolutely remember the Winter War of nineteen forty, where they invaded Finland and got their asses squarely handed to them. And uh, this produced one of the sniper in sniper mythology. You've got Simo Haya, who was, uh, I, I believe, the most successful um, sniper in military history. Yeah. Had over five hundred uh, confirmed kills in a winter. You have so much knowledge. You have so much knowledge in that brain of yours, Eric. Well, hey, man, I've been waiting for Finland to join NATO for a long time. So, Well, you might get your wish. You might get your wish. Um, so that's the nice photograph today of the three of them striding confidently and hoping that the Republicans don't screw up their little plan, um, which they won't, obviously, at the end, because they ultimately, hopefully, have some sort of responsibility. But we'll see. But there's $40 billion that was uh, approved today by the Senate to Ukraine for their Ukrainian effort. There's also $9 billion that was handed to them from the United States through the G7, which handed them another $18 billion or $19 billion today. So you've got $49 billion. Seems like a lot of money, right? Seems like that's enough to fight a war for a long period of time, except over on the other side of the ledger is Russia's surplus. Because of the oil price going up, because of the incredible increase in oil prices we've all been suffering from, Russia has been coining it, has been banking so much additional revenue because of uh, there'd be no real oil embargo from Europe and other parts of the world. So they've been able to clock up $96 billion in a surplus, worth I guess, in the current account. Worth of rubles or worth dollars? I think it's... $96 billion in their accounts? Because I think they're sanctioned from their central bank, aren't they? I think they'd be getting it as rubles, though. I think they're being paid by in rubles, but it's worth $96 billion, I think. I don't know if that's the case, but I'll have to double check. But this has caused a big stink amongst many people who are saying, what we're doing is basically funding the extension of this war by... You know, yes, we have to support Ukraine, but if Russia is making more and more money on the one side, they'll just keep doing the war. They don't care about the rest of the world, clearly. They don't care if the rest of the world is suffering. So there's a, a real challenge here up ahead for us as a world about whether we're going to be enforcing this oil embargo and whether the European countries are really going to be providing a real embargo. And with all these other countries around the world, like these smaller countries that are still very much in Russia's camp, 
whether they also stop buying oil from Russia. And I say that all because as a prelude to my interview with Kira Rudik, who's a parliamentarian from uh, Ukraine. You've probably seen her on TV do a lot of great work informing people about what's going on in that war. She's a terrific spokesperson for them. She is the leader of the voice party there in the Rada, which is the parliament of Ukraine. She is a fantastic spokesperson for them. And she wanted to react first with us as to uh, her reaction to hearing the news about the $40 billion that was now going to be available to Ukraine to continue fighting this war and for a humanitarian effort around it. And um, at the end of the day, Russia's economy is, is collapsing. Their supply chains are collapsing. Their you know, access to uh, you know, global institutions is collapsing. And NATO, that's, you know, you add that with NATO beefing up on its literal borders, which has been something it's not wanted to have happen. That's why it's, uh, you know, attempting to compromise various countries on its uh, borders forever, really, but definitely of late. And that's all failed in dramatic fashion. And now, you know, a country that's only able to spend $6 billion on its military that's, you know, larded up with Russian spies and buying Russian materiel for its, you know, needs, they've now got eight times as much military spend as they used to. And right. then up right. north, you get the Finnish who are like, we'll fight the Russians. We're cool. Yeah, let's go. I mean, this is, uh, there's not a single strategic thing that's going Putin's way. And now, um, oh, actually, there's a news report just before the, um, with the start of the show, where the Five Eyes Attorney General Association, which is the same countries as the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, United States, UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, all their attorneys general have made a, a group statement saying that they look forward to helping prosecute every possible crime that was committed during the Russian invasion. It's very oh, that's interesting. Good. That's good. It's great. Also, check out the language. It's very subtle there. It's none, it didn't say just Russians. It said, well, prosecuting crimes happened during the invasion. Mm. It's really important because, you know, uh, one of the things that's going on right now is those Mariupol um, uh, battalions, soldiers that have been taken into Russia, now they're facing prosecution by Russia um, for potentially being part of a so-called terrorist organization, which have not been named that. But that is the, the risk that they're facing, which is, you know, not exactly what they had agreed to. So we talk about that in this interview. So uh, let's take a listen to uh, Rita Kurik and me as just uh, – Minutes after the Senate voted for the $40 billion package to Ukraine. We're joined tonight by Kira Rudik. She's the current leader of the political party Voice in Ukraine. And since 2019, she's been a member of Verkhov Narada. How are you, Kira? Thank you for being here. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, $40 billion aid package. That seems like a, a, a truly substantial amount to all of us. Um, is it enough to help uh, Ukraine out of the situation that it's in right now? So we are extremely happy in Ukraine here that we will receive the, uh, this support. This is something that we have been waiting for, and it has so many angles of why it is uh, great for my country, uh, starting from that it will be cash flowing in. Some of uh, uh, these 40 billion, uh, like more than one third would be used for the weapons. Uh, that we will be buying and leasing uh, some to cover our debts and some to get the supplies for Ukrainian army. On the other symbolic part, it is a support that is ongoing and uh, it shows the world that there is no Ukraine fatigue and that the United States remains to be our uh, strongest and largest ally in this war. 
On the other hand, what we need to remember is that uh, it's obviously to everybody right now that this war is a marathon and not a sprint. And for the ones who jog like me, uh, you know that uh, you cannot just have like one uh, one bar of chocolate and then have your whole run with it. You will have to get the support, support, and support. And this is why, especially given the numbers, that we need $5 billion uh, a month only for humanitarian support and not even for the military support, you can imagine of how long we will last with those 40 billion. So not so long. I'm sorry. So I, I don't know that I have to eat as much chocolate bars to make my runs work, but it does seem like a lot of money when you factor in the $5 billion. That's only going to last you half a year. What are you going to do beyond if this war keeps going on and it seems to now be settling into a sort of a protracted pattern? Is at some point there's just not enough money out there? Well, I strongly believe that uh, it's uh, uh, we are very grateful. It should not be U.S., U.K., European taxpayers paying for Russian misdeeds in Ukraine. There is enough of frozen Russian assets in the world so that if unfrozen and given to Ukraine, we can actually make Russia pay for what they are committing right now in Ukraine. There are two directions of that. So first is a, a money of Russian Central Bank. So it's basically governmental money. And it's uh, around $300 billion uh, all over the world, which sounds sounds nice, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot and of money. So, yeah, well, so sounds lovely. Sounds like then we'll have enough for everything. But the issue is that there are international laws that uh, prevent countries from unfreezing uh, assets from uh, sovereign banks and giving them to whoever they want. So that will require a significant change in legislation, though I'm pushing forward with all my colleagues from different countries and the progress is there. In some countries, it moves further. In some countries, it moves uh, slower, but I do believe that once the first country will make this decision, you know, it will be a house of cards and the rest will follow through. And especially those countries that we like, like to call uh, small, small uh, countries where money lay, like mm-hmm. Virgin and Belize, etc. So uh, they usually wait until the big players make a decision and then say, yeah, we were always for democracy. Right. So the second second uh, part of Russian money is actually private money that are under sanctions right now. So when you hear the word sanctions and somebody was sanctioned, it basically means that they took their yachts, their helicopters, etc., and frozen it. Mm-hmm. Again, I do strongly believe that you need to sell them and then send money back, and then it will be even more than forty billion dollars. Absolutely. There's also, you know, a big surplus in the Russian economy right now because of the price of oil going up. You know, we're seeing you know, billions of dollars in surplus now in foreign reserves, which are not expected really because of these sanctions, uh, because Putin is able to benefit from these increased oil prices because of his war. It seems to me that without an oil embargo, a real oil embargo, it's going to be very hard to get uh, Russia to stop financing this war effort. Well, Let's uh, again use logic. Did did we ban um, Russian oil in European Union? And the answer is no. Did we ban Russian gas in European Union? And the answer is no. So what this means is that while we are talking, every single day, European countries are paying Russia a billion dollars. Mm. Billion dollars. Unbelievable. Billion dollars. 
So when we are talking about, okay, uh, uh, okay, let's send this tremendous aid to Ukraine, it only covers the same thing that, that European countries are paying to Russia for, for in 40 days. So that's why the sanctions are so important. And that's why if, if sanctions are not implemented, Russia will continue benefiting from the war because its economy is built like a huge gas station, a very aggressive gas station that is uh, benefiting from the gas prices. And even if they will be critically low, Russia will still find a market for that. And it will still uh, continue selling it. So that's why it needs to be a mutual effort from countries that uh, will stop buying Russian gas in oil, but from the international community with the world leaders pushing other countries not to start buying uh, Russian gas and oil. So basically really close the markets. And I see uh, for that, so the sanctions, the six package of sanctions with the oil, they would only start in six months mm. this united effort would start with probably in a year so when you're asking me when the war would end uh, i i can just throw this ball at you and so this is well. this is true that we would take six months to a year to get all these sanctions in place for the oil embargo and uh and if that's the case, then there's no real reason for Putin to stop fighting that's why he might also keep the war even smoldering for a while why not i mean for him there's no downside yes, yes. so his future is uh, right now uh, assured with the finance much better than any of both of us. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly seems like that's something that uh, Washington needs to pay a lot of attention to and the world. I mean, certainly Washington's been leading this effort, but it's time maybe for a lot more pressure on other countries that have not uh, started the oil embargo to, to implement it because at the end of the day, that's the only way this war is really going to wind down, it seems to me. Um, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Mariupol, because there has been an evacuation of at least uh, 950, I believe, um, soldiers from the uh, from the steel factory over there. Are there still any people left inside that factory? Yes, there are warriors that are not uh, have not been wounded. They are still left there, and they continue fighting. They will plan to uh, defend the Azovstal to the end. Well, that was their statement. So. This wow. is why it is, well, they said we know it's a suicide mission, but we are ready to a suicide mission. So mm. right now we, uh, we actually concentrated on making sure that the evacuated people are being treated fairly and well, and that Russians keep their word on, on allowing and getting people uh, the medical aid that they needed. So uh, from what we hear from the volunteers of United Nations and the Red Cross, uh, the state of many, many of the bound people is critical and, um, and they are trying just to save their lives. What about the soldiers that have been taken to Russia, the ones that now we hear Putin is suggesting may go on trial? Um, is there any more word on whether that will happen and whether they will declare the Azov Brigade a, a terrorist organization in Russia? Well, that was an anticipated move uh, from the very beginning. They did really hope that it wouldn't happen um, uh, for some time. However, right now, we what we see is uh, uh, that Russia will move forward with... Um, uh, with uh, uh, not treating the Azovstal uh, evacuated people uh, the way that they promised. Uh, 
we had United Nations and Red Cross as a guarantors of the, the security of this operation. So I, I would like to be very careful with, um, uh, with the statements here, just in terms of that, let them do their job. Yeah. So the idea is that they remain in this Olenivka for some time with the pot potential to be evacuated somewhere to the third countries, but these negotiations are still in place. Certainly sounds that that's very important that that gets resolved and, and we'll, we won't go too much deeper into that because of those negotiations and those um, and the work that needs to be done there. Um, let me turn then a little bit to the refugee crisis. It's still 6 million is the number we're seeing um, that have fled Ukraine. And we, today we heard there were 50,000 arriving in the United Kingdom. When you look at the scale of that, you know, you've got 6 million refugees and you've got 50,000 arriving in the United Kingdom. Again, it just seems like a drop in the bucket. What more can the world be doing to help the refugees um, settle down in, in, in countries other than Poland, which, is where, which seems to be having the brunt of the issue? So uh, obviously the, uh, the, the workforce is looking for work. And uh, this is the main thing to keep in mind. And uh, this is why And some people, they don't want to move from Poland because they still hope that they will return to Ukraine like in a month or so. We understand the situation is much more complicated and that it probably wouldn't happen in a month or so. So uh, the ability for people to start their new life in the peaceful countries would, would include, uh, well, first documentary support, but also like ability to, to have social protection and like a place to leave their children with. So just before talking to you, I was talking to my friend uh, who is a refugee with her small daughter, six months, years old. She's in France right now, but she cannot find any, any work. She, uh, she's trying to do some translations, but she doesn't have a possibility to leave her daughter with anybody. And she's just like sitting, uh, uh thankful to people who took her under her roof. So because most of the refugees are women with children, because these were the, the, the people who fled the first, uh, right now it is incredibly important and critical to give this infrastructure for, for children to be taken care of. So then mothers can, can settle their lives. Mm. You know, I think about those children so much. Uh, I suffer from PTSD and I know um, a lot of these children are going to grow up with symptoms of PTSD, no doubt. And, and that is a very uh, difficult thing for them to grow up with. You see them so bravely, you know, holding back tears and, and living their normal lives. But of course, underneath that, there's always some sort of trauma that's being developed in a lot of these cases. What can be done even at this stage to help those children um, you know, deal with PTSD so it doesn't you know, build up and build up over a lifetime, which is what happens with post-traumatic stress disorder and, you know, and can become quite difficult to live with over a period of time. So what, what can be done for those kids today um, to, to make sure that they, they don't have to deal with the consequences for decades to come? So, well, first of all, you know, that was like probably the most terrifying thing that I was thinking of when the war started, mm -hmm. when we had children that we had to tell them that it's all a game and pretend to play different games when, when the bombarding was all over the place. Uh, we have uh, had this game of turtle when, when we told children to uh, go on the, the ground and open their mouth and cover their ears so they wouldn't suffer 
of the shockwave if something, and we were telling them, well, we are just playing turtles, etc. But obviously, they do understand everything, and they face the, the, the atrocities of war in in different stages of their life, like like the, the teenagers who have seen dead bodies that they were never supposed to see at this uh, fragile age, or or toddlers who were sent without their parents, only told 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 their blood type that they they were uh, actually given to social workers. So uh, the help should be the, the first, uh, making sure that there is a peace. And uh, if the war in Ukraine continues for so long, people, children need to be, be staying where, where they can feel safe. The safety is a top priority. It's the first and foremost important thing. They're saying you're safe, you're here, you, you can you may not stop if being afraid anymore. The second is ob- obviously psychological help and support and integration into the society. Because, uh, because I agree with you that it's very important uh, to, to receive the support so it wouldn't be bundling up. I also believe that once you have like new emotions and new, uh, new things to do and pos- lots of positive things in your life, it's getting easier to, to go through the trauma that you suffered mm-hmm. because so I have a friend in Turkey and she is manufacturing, uh, women's lingerie. So she sent me two boxes of that to give to the victims of sexual assaults here in Ukraine. And she told me, she told me, I said like, are you sure it's appropriate? She said, look, just give it to them and tell them that there would be love. There would be life. It may not happen right away, but at some point it will change. And there will be a day when you don't feel pain anymore. And I believe with children, it's the same, the same thing that, that you need to show that, that the, the future doesn't have to be the same as the present. You know, the human body is so remarkable that it's able to suppress all these things and, and carry on. That's part of the way we survive a lot of these traumatic events. And, uh, and a lot of the time that's what causes them to bubble up so many years later is the suppression. So the, the processing of these traumas early on is so critical in, in a psychological setting. And it seems like that's obviously a, a priority, but it can't be as much of a priority as just their, their safety right now. And it's certainly one of the things that I think the world and especially the United States can think about leaning into and seeing how they can uh, support some of these kids so that they don't have it a lifetime. And, and these women, as you point out, a, a lifetime of, of trauma that's you know, unnecessary and, and can be dealt with at an early stage. Um, we are also amazed at the courage of Ukrainians, and you've probably heard this often, and the tenacity of, of Ukrainians and their ability to continue to fight in the face of so much. And yet these, these images we're getting out of Kharkiv now and out of these other parts of Ukraine that are so devastating and so cruel um, how, how do you continue? How do you continue in the face of all of that? I mean, it might in some way be an inspiration, an inspiration, a motivation, but in other ways, it, it must be so difficult. It is. I wouldn't lie to you. There are days when you like waking up and you just literally pulling yourself out of the bed. There are some days, uh, and the, probably the hardest ones were after the adrenaline of the beginning of the war, it passed. And then you're just like asking yourself, now what? Now what? So we have this, we have this point on like that we need to win the war and then we will figure out. But this is one of the Putin's strategy to make sure that it is a, 
um, uh, it is a, a long-term and exhausting war where people become demotivated same way as they become poor and same way that, you know, the attention from the whole world winds down. And this is my biggest fear, honestly. So, um, well, first of all, we all have relatives and loved ones who are fighting in the front. So you, you're just like saying you cannot allow yourself to be weak because, because they are fighting and they, they have like challenges um, uh, that, that, you, that you cannot imagine facing. So, and there is this thing in, um, in Ukrainian radio that I heard once and I'm repeating to all the other people is saying, do whatever you can do, but today a little bit better because we are pushing for the victory. So this is what I'm telling myself, like what, what I can do to, to make the victory day closer and let's do it today a little bit better than we were doing it before. And that's probably helping to go through, to push through the day. And as a runner, uh, you know, like how it is, uh, the, the best way to start running is just to start running. You're absolutely right. And it's still remarkable. I got to say, we are all in awe of what the Ukrainian people are doing in this uh, incredible war effort. And it does look you know, to everybody that this war will be won by Ukraine. It is just a matter of time. And uh, hopefully you get the right weapons and support now with this $40 billion aid package, uh, enough to go on for at least the next few months to, to really achieve this victory against Russia and Vladimir Putin. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Akira Rudik. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much and glory to Ukraine. Have a great day. Really is great to have Kira Rudik with us here on Narrative, talking about that $40 billion package, which has now been approved by the Senate and uh, surely will be signed by Joe Biden in just the next few hours, which will release $40 billion military and humanitarian aid to the people of Ukraine who desperately need it right now as they battle a war against Vladimir Putin and Russia. We uh, thank her for being on the show. We thank Eric Garland for being here. He had to step away because he did such a great job in the first half. And we did did speak a little bit earlier about Joe Biden's day, which included this historic moment of welcoming the president and prime minister of Sweden and Finland to the White House as he's pushing for Sweden and Finland to become part of NATO. And we think that's a good way to end the show. So here's a clip Sweden of that. Sweden and Finland have strong democratic institutions, strong militaries, and strong and transparent economies, and a strong moral sense of what is right. They meet every NATO requirement, and then some. Today, my administration is submitting to the United States Congress reports on NATO accession for both countries, so the Senate can efficiently and quickly move on advising and consenting to the treaty. I want to assure that Finland will become a strong NATO ally. We take our security very seriously. The Finnish armed forces are one of the strongest in Europe. We are ready to contribute to the security of the whole alliance, making the commitment to mutual security guarantees that being a NATO ally entails. Russia's full-scale aggression against a sovereign and democratic neighbor that was a watershed moment for Sweden. And my government has come to the, to the conclusion that the security of the Swedish people will be best protected within the NATO alliance. 
narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.